Brief disclaimer this week, these are the Grimm stories, so there's some light dismemberment. It's not in a mean way, you'll see what I mean later. And there's also some implied violence against animals. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, there are three stories from the Grimm brothers. On the first, you'll see how two bottles of wine before dinner might lead to some questionable cooking choices. On the second, you'll see why you shouldn't do unnecessary surgery for a free hotel room. And on the third, you'll learn how to beat death. The creature this week is a couple generations of Irish water monsters who are looking for love. This is Myths and Legends, episode 239. Give them a hand. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, there are three lighter stories from the Grimm Brothers, where people lend others a hand in a couple different ways. We'll jump right in with Gretel, but not that Gretel, getting ready for a big dinner at her employer's house. Gretel, we have that professor coming over for dinner tonight. Gretel stood in the kitchen, awaiting her orders. Two fowls, ready by the time I return, the master demanded, put on his cap and left the house. Gretel nodded, time to get to work. It wasn't a bad job at all. She had been working for the master since she had been old enough to work, which it was the early modern period, so that was a long time for a 20-year-old. She had to look presentable for guests, so she got new clothes and red shoes. She didn't have to toil away sewing somewhere. She got to do what she loved, and she was appreciated for it. Who could really ask for more? It could be worse. She could be one of those chickens. She grabbed two of them from the pen. She stopped talking to them years ago. It made what had to happen easier. She made it quick, and soon the bodies dangled from her hands as she made her way to the already boiling cauldron. She dipped the poultry in and held them there for a few seconds. They dripped and steamed as she laid them out on the table and, gripping handful after handful of the feathers, gently pulled them loose. She was done in minutes and didn't tear the skin. Didn't get much better than that. She put the chickens on the spit before getting the sides together. Potatoes and a vegetable. The day wore on and she cleaned up. Mended some clothes. Had a bit of time to herself before it was time to light the oven and put the chickens in. This is why someone like Gretel is worth their weight in gold. It's not like you have an oven where you can set a temperature or even something where you can read a temperature. Everything had to be done by feeling. Anyway, Gretel roasted the chickens. The master came home and hung up his coat and hat, and Gretel nodded to him. Chicken was almost done. Would the professor be here soon? The master took out a pocket watch and looked at the time. He was supposed to have been there a half hour ago. Well, chickens are almost done, Gretel said, pointing to the golden brown and steaming chickens on the spit would be a shame if they weren't eaten at their juiciest. The master nodded. Uh, all right. He would head out and see what was taking the man so long. Try and leave the chickens in as long as possible without burning them. Greta watched him leave. 
counted to ten, and the door opened again. He forgot his hat and coat, as usual. When he was gone, Gretel smacked her lips. Standing in front of this fire for the last hour made her thirsty. She squinted. She couldn't see the master now. Yeah, she had enough time. After her second big swig of the good wine from the cellar, she figured she better get back upstairs. She topped off the good wine with the not-so-good wine, replaced the cork, and her red shoes tapped up the stairs to the kitchen. The thing about cooking was that it made her thirsty, and the thing about wine was it made her hungry. The chicken smelled amazing, and it just occurred to her that she should really taste one to see if it was good. If she served a subpar bird, her job could be at risk. Yeah, just a taste. Of course, after she poked it and licked her finger, finding that it tasted even better than it looked, she convinced herself that the perfectly golden brown wing was burning. Oh no, she sliced it off and picked it clean. Now though, she had a problem. The bird was only waving on one side. It was too obvious now that the bird was lopsided, so she took her knife, sliced the other wing off the first bird, and pulled the meat from it. There. She would just ply her master with the good wine and tuck some of the sides close to the bird. With dim lights and a conversation, he wouldn't know the difference. She looked it over. Oh, now, too, the sides would have some extra time to roast up and cover the missing wings. Good. They ended up having a lot of time. Too much, almost. Soon, Gretel had to remove the chickens from the spit to make sure that the golden brown didn't turn into a crispy black. She tapped her red shoes as she looked out the window. Her master still wasn't even in sight. Then, a thought dawned on her. The master and guest weren't even coming. He had probably stopped off at his friend's house again and eaten there. This was just disrespectful to her and the birds. They died for nothing. Gretel was so over tonight that she went back down to the cellar to take two more big swigs of the good wine. It was more and more mediocre wine at this point, but for some reason she didn't care as much. Can't imagine why. She replaced the wine she drank, tossed the mediocre bottle, and headed back upstairs. Arms crossed, she saw the air stealing the warmth and juices of the chickens that she had not only spent all day cooking, but had raised from chicks herself. It was well past dark now. She looked out on the street and, in the glow of the lamps, didn't see the master at all. She took one of the knives, skewered the chicken, and dropped it down on a plate. Dinner was served. After a jug of wine on an empty stomach, you could say that Gretel's inhibition was loosened. The chicken was perfect, and it was a shame that the master didn't get to try it. Though she was glad that someone did, and also that that someone was her. She leaned back to look out the window, and they still weren't coming down the road. Well, she could hardly be responsible for what happened next, despite it 100% being her responsibility. She went to the oven, skewered the next chicken, and sat down at the table. She paused, and then she rose. What was she doing? She shouldn't eat this. Her red shoes rang out on the cellar steps once more, and seconds later, she brought the second jug of the good wine up. She shouldn't eat the chicken without wine, she should have said. She yanked the cork with her teeth and drank it straight from the bottle. She didn't even care anymore. She sat back, full after sending the second chicken after the first, grease dribbling down her cheek, when she heard 
from far off down the street. Gretel! Gretel, I found him! He's on the way! She sat up. Oh my gosh! She cared. She cared so much. She couldn't lose this job. She had to figure something out. When the master returned, Gretel was standing right in front of the oven, with mitts on, as if the master had interrupted her. Good, get those birds out. He's on his way. He was delayed at work. I'll go out back and sharpen the knife to carve the birds, the master said. His collar dotted with sweat after his trip all over town. Gretel smiled and steadied herself on the table. Whew. Whoa. What's wrong with you? The master demanded, stopping. Gretel stifled a burp. Lightheaded. She hadn't eaten all day. The master's mustache bristled. That was no good. She should take care of herself. She should carve off a bit of his meat for herself. She sighed. He was the best. The master was startled by someone passing by the window. All right. Everything on the table. He'll go out back and sharpen the knives. Let's do this. Gretel held up her mitted hands, but he couldn't see the thumbs up. When he left, she turned to the oven. You could still hear the ringing of the knife being sharpened out back. When the guest knocked, Gretel took off the mitts and answered the door. She swallowed hard, looked to the floor, and directed the man in. She led him to the table. Wait, where's the food? Wilhelm said there would be food laid out. The guest gestured to the table. Gretel dropped to the floor, gripping her knees, sobbing, the sounds of the knife still ringing from out back. Oh, she couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it again. The man looked at the table. Couldn't make dinner? Gretel stomped her foot and rose, drying her eyes on her dress. She couldn't do it again, and she wouldn't do it again. With a hush, she pulled the guest close. The man was from out of town, right? The guest nodded. Yeah, here for just tonight. She looked off with a sigh. And what did the master tell him about dinner tonight? The guest shook his head. Nothing. Just that he was a fan of my work at the university, and he wanted to have me over for dinner, and that his cook was the best in town. Aw, Gretel said. She shook the smile from her face. Still, the man had to leave. Now. Leave? Why? Gretel whispered that her master had unusual tastes. He planned to carve off the professor's ears, roast them, and eat them. The professor staggered back, holding his ears. What? Gretel nodded, pointing the thumb out back. Yep, listen, he's out sharpening his knife right now. Why would he invite the professor over and then have nothing on the table? The professor started to breathe more heavily. He locked eyes with Gretel, thanking the woman. <laughs> Don't thank me until you're out of town with your ears. Just run, Gretel said, shoving the man out the door. As soon as he was out, Gretel rushed to the table and set it, dribbling some of the grease from the chicken on the plates. Then she screamed and kicked open the back door. Fine guest you invited, she screamed to her master. The master stood there confused. He had just finished sharpening the knife. He didn't understand what happened. What happened was that he took the chickens. Gretel yelled, pointing to the door. The master stood, knife in hand, took the chick took the chickens? He took the chickens. Yeah, both of them. Grab the wine too, Gretel said. He's still walking down the street. The master squeezed in next to Gretel. 
and saw the professor speed walking down the street. Wilhelm shook his head. That was so rude. The master ran around the house, jumped his fence, and the master ran out the front door, jumped his fence, and, waving the knife in the air that he forgot to put down, yelled out to the professor, Come on! You don't need both of them! Just leave me one! Please! I'm so hungry! The master called out, and the professor, thinking that the man was talking about his ears, shrieked and took off in a sprint. He didn't stop till he was on the edge of town and jumped in the next carriage far away from here, never to return again. The master returned, well, rats. That guy was a jerk. Probably never going to see him again. Gretel wondered why anyone would do that. Steal someone's food. The nerve. The master grabbed some bread and turned to Gretel. Well, they could always eat together. Did she want some wine? Gretel smiled. Well, I, she was on the clock. The master said, we can make an exception for tonight. He poured the wine and they enjoyed a simple dinner in peace. Our next story has to do with surgeons using their craft to get a free night at hotels. But that will be right after this. You want a free night because you're doctors, the innkeeper asked. The three men corrected the innkeeper. Surgeons. They're surgeons. Not just any surgeons either. The best. Okay, the innkeeper said, more confused. And you're going to do surgery for a free room in the inn? The three surgeons laughed. She couldn't afford them. No, they wanted a free night because they were the best. It sounds like you're the ones who can't afford stuff, the innkeeper remarked. Now, if they didn't get out of here and make room for paying customers, she would give them a reason to need surgery. They looked at each other and then back to the innkeeper with a shrug. Sorry, that was, that was clunky. I mean, I'll have my guys beat you up and break your bones and stuff, necessitating surgery for you to live. You know, physical violence. The innkeeper pinched the bridge of her nose. It had been a long day. Speaking of physical violence, one of the surgeons blurted and brought out a big butcher's knife. Now, the innkeeper had been robbed before, but she truly wasn't expecting it now. These guys, while very low-rank con men, came off uh, more as doofuses, despite their alleged pedigree as the greatest surgeons of all time. But the physical violence wasn't meant for the innkeeper. It was for one of the other surgeons. The one who pulled out the knife gripped the forearm of his companion, put it down on the table in front of him, and took the man's hand off at the wrist. The innkeeper, and everyone else really, screamed at the severed hand on the table. The surgeon with the knife stopped there, though, and bandaged up his friend. You want to know how good we are? The surgeon asked. He could reattach that hand. But not now, in the morning, after a free night. Not only that, but the surgeons could do them one better. Two better, actually. Here's the deal. They get a free night with food and ale and everything, and in exchange, they would do hand, eye, and heart surgery tomorrow. You, you're going to take out someone's eyes and heart, too? The innkeeper asked. Following, but not quite following. The surgeons grinned. 
absolutely, and she could hold on to their hand, eyes, and heart until the following morning, just to prove that they were legit. The innkeeper did some mental calculations on three free rooms versus all the extra money she would make tonight on food and drinks when a guy cut out another guy's heart in her tavern. These were the Middle Ages. This was good entertainment. She held out a hand. They had themselves a deal. Just give her a moment to get a crowd together. The crowd was completely into one guy getting his eyes gouged out and the third getting Temple of Doomed when his fellow surgeon tore into his chest and took out his still-beating heart. He snipped all the veins and arteries, and somehow the surgeon who had surprise heart surgery was still alive. Let's not worry about it. They plopped the heart down into the waiting bowl with the eyes and hand and watched as the innkeeper locked it up. They bandaged each other and went to join the party. said party died down around midnight and the three men went to their rooms and when the main room was quiet there was a tap at the door a servant, a young woman felt her way down the stairs in the dying light of the fire careful to avoid the creaks when she made it to the door she opened it and a man slipped in before anyone saw him she took him into her arms and they kissed some time later the pair was in the kitchen rooting around for something to eat The soldier, the young woman's boyfriend, jiggled the door of one of the cupboards. Why was this one locked? It was never locked. She finished piling meat and bread on a plate and then grinned. Oh, that's right. He just got back into town. She dangled the keys. Wanna see a human heart? It was gross, but fun. And after the soldier high-fived the severed hand, put in an eye like a monocle, and gave a heart to the woman he loved, They put everything back on the plate in the cupboard. The servant felt her dress. Ah, she left the keys in the other room. Ah, they would come back to it. They ate in whispers by the fire. And about a half hour later, the soldier was getting ready to head home when there was a crash from the kitchen. They went in to find the cupboard open. Remember, the servant didn't close it and found the plate on the floor and a cat at the open window, an eye in its mouth. It gulped down the eye and dove out into the darkness. Where, where's the rest of the stuff? Where's the hand and the heart? The soldier asked. The girl pounded a foot on the ground. That cat! He was always coming into the kitchen, getting stuff. He took the hand and the heart. The pair threw their coats on and rushed outside. And after they spent a half hour wading through the moors, hands frozen digging through the muck, they knew they would never find the cat's hiding place. The items were gone. Well, We have to go, the soldier said. This was fun. They had always planned on running away together. This just accelerated things a bit. The servant looked to the inn, glowing in the night. To the innkeeper, who had given her a chance. She couldn't leave the woman to face the angry men the next day. She had to do something. The hand, oddly enough, was the easiest one to find. The town, not really getting their fill of macabre entertainment, had all come from a public hanging of a man who had been caught in the act of stealing before watching another one get his heart cut out and then a third get his eyes gouged out. Yeah, These are all great stories for children. The soldier took out his knife and however long it takes to cut off a hand with a kitchen knife, I'm not Googling that, returned with a hand wrapped in a handkerchief. As he was sewing off the man's hand, 
the soldier said that he thought of a way she could get her hands on a heart. He never thought he would say that sentence. He said that they slaughtered pigs here in the tavern for their food, right? The woman said, yeah, but they didn't use the hearts. Then, her face lit up. They didn't use the hearts. A few minutes, and one pig heart from the basement later, and the pair was placing everything back on the plates. Well, now they just had to get the eyes. The cat, the one who had stolen the organs and appendages and caused all this trouble, meowed from the window and started cleaning himself. The couple looked at one another. Well... The next morning, the innkeeper unlocked the cupboard. All right, one hand, one heart, two eyes, all here. Let's see some surgery. They had about half the crowd as the night before. The heartless one put the hand back on his friend. Palming the herb, the one they had found that can heal anyone and anything, and the trick to them being such great surgeons, and he rubbed the wound as he held the hand close. When he backed away, the surgeon flexed the hand, and the crowd cheered. Next, the surgeon with his right hand back on fit the eyes in his co-worker, who smiled and waved to everyone, blinking. Hey, look at us. Everything's cool and normal. They handed him the heart, but he shook his head. The hand surgeon shrugged and replaced his friend's heart, and the three were back together. They waved, took a bow, solicited some donations, grabbed their packs, and left town. Ten minutes later, they realized that something was up. What are you doing? The two surgeons looked down to see the third, caking himself with mud. He said he didn't know, but it was amazing. He was feeling hot when they were walking, and he saw some mud, and it just like, it just felt right, guys. Like, getting down here, caking himself in mud, rubbing his face in it. It really scratched an itch, you know? Then he smelled the air. Guys, Guys, oh my gosh. He didn't know what he was smelling, but he really liked the smell. What's he doing? The man with his eyes back in said, squinting. Uh, what's wrong with your eyes? Like, can you see or not? The hand guy asked. The eye guy shrugged. Uh, a little bit? It was all just super bright in the direct sunlight. Things didn't feel normal. The hand guy patted him on the back. It, just give it a few hours. It'll be fine. I mean, he was feeling fine, at least. His hand was completely normal. Hey, guys, guys, the other surgeon said, bringing up something from the dirt. Truffles! The surgeon stood before another innkeeper later on that evening. So, we're the best surgeons in the world, and... What are you doing? The innkeeper asked. Uh, getting a room? Hopefully for free, because I'm the best surgeon in the world. Well, one of them. The hand guy observed. No, like, what are you doing with your right hand right now? The surgeon looked down, and he was robbing the stranger next to him. Pickpocketing him. He hadn't even realized he was doing anything. He yanked the hand back, but then it punched him in the head. When he awoke, to one of the town's physicians crouched over him, his hand was already awake, going through the man's bag. The surgeon shrieked, holding his hand tight to his chest and offering to pay for a room, double. He just needed some privacy with his friends. 
I think we're supposed to read this as they're not actual surgeons, but they did figure out what was going on. The heart had been lost, replaced with that of a pig. The hand was apparently that of a thief. And the eyes? The eyes became apparent the moment the lights went off. And the cat eye guy saw the insane mouse infestation of this inn. These aren't our real body parts, they said to the previous innkeeper on the following day, after backtracking to that inn. What happened to their body parts? The woman said she didn't know, but it might be a relevant detail that her servant girl skipped town shortly after the men left the other day. She stole them? More likely she lost them. I mean, why would she want them? Why would anyone? Regardless, she did have a key to the cabinet where they were stored, so there you go. The three surgeons surrounded the woman. She was going to make this right. She asked, how? They had body parts. She had given them body parts back. There was no precedent for anything happening here. They said that they wanted financial restitution. Enough to live on. Forever. The innkeeper laughed. Yeah, I mean, who didn't? Just then, the hand guy's hand grabbed a lantern and smashed it on a table, spraying fuel and flames, igniting it. The innkeeper shrieked and grabbed a bucket of water, but the right hand held her back from putting it out. Wow. Yeah, this guy plays for keeps, the surgeon with the hand remarked. So, what did the innkeeper say? Did they have a deal? She screamed, yes, just let her put out the fire. She couldn't lose the inn. She did end up paying them. And I guess she technically did lose the body parts that were under her protection, but threatening to burn down her inn if she doesn't pay them all her cash immediately? Not exactly hero tactics on the part of the surgeons. The story says that the surgeons, if they are actually surgeons, went away with the cash, and that it was enough to last them the rest of their lives. Though they did wish they had their original body parts back. So yeah, I guess have some humility and don't do unnecessary surgeries for free hotel rooms. Or you might end up being able to see mice everywhere or rooting around in the dirt wherever you go. Plus side though, free truffles. We'll tell our third and final story, that of death's messengers. But that will be right after this. human. Out of my way, the giant screamed out to the traveler. Do you know who I am? Um, yeah. You're a dead man, the pale stranger, the traveler at the crossroads at twilight, said to the giant. You're dead because you don't know who I am. No one resists me, and you, too, must obey my orders, for I am death. The giant, leaning on his club, blinked. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, Death replied. You don't seem to get it. I'm Death, not a personification, like I'm the Grim Reaper, a psychopomp who takes people to the afterlife. Show some respect. Why? The giant asked. Why? You're asking me why? Death replied, as he unbuttoned his cuffs and rolled up his sleeves. Because I kill people. I kill everyone. So? The giant furrowed his brow. He said he was a giant in Germanic folklore. He killed people too. So many people. Like, 
in terms of causes of death in early modern Europe, it's like bad water, small cuts, serial killers who get married way too many times, and giants. It was good for this guy to be born into the death business, but he had to work his way up. Death shook his head. All right. It sounded like the giant wanted a demonstration. Oh, absolutely, the giant replied. Death went over and touched the giant's toe with a look of satisfaction on his face. A look that quickly disappeared. Oh, hmm, okay, well, uh, it looks like it's not your time yet. You know, fate is really important. Can't ignore fate. Death nodded to the giant, rolling his sleeves back down. Well, he was just going to be on his way. Oh, wow, it's actually back the way he came. He didn't even need to come through here at all. Weird. You ever end up in a room and forget why you're there? Kind of like that, but on a, you know, bigger worldwide scale. All right, I'll be seeing you. A giant foot slammed down on the other side of death, blocking his path. The giant's yellow teeth formed into a grin. Oh, no, 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 the giant said. Now, it's my turn. The giant knelt over the crumpled form that used to be death. He had been pummeling this pale sack of flesh for like 20 minutes. The giant took a breather and flexed his fist. From the ground, death groaned. That was all he could do at the moment. You know, I, this is embarrassing, but I think we need to call this one a draw, the giant said. He thought about going back to stomping on the little guy, but honestly, he didn't know what good it would do. No matter how many times he hit death, death wouldn't die. And in retrospect, that made sense, but you know, here they were. He made a fist, and the parts of death that were still capable of wincing did so. But the giant inspected his raw knuckles. He might be a giant, but he didn't want to die from one of those small cuts. They were still in the early modern period, after all. The giant shrugged. Welp, death touched his toe. He broke nearly every bone in death's body. But both of them were still alive. Looked like a draw. Potato, potato. Uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. When in Rome, he wasn't great with sayings. He nodded at death. You gonna be okay? Ah, you'll be okay. Later, bud. The ground rumbled as the giant left the broken form of death by the stone at the crossroads. As death laid there, healing, he, like me whenever I get sick, wasn't thinking about relaxing and getting better. He was thinking about work and everything he was gonna have to do when he got back to the office his office being so many deathbeds. Death lay there for the better part of a day, and though he was healing, he was healing very slowly. I guess death lives by, like, Minecraft rules. He'll heal a whole lot faster if you get some food in him. But most people who passed stared into the eyes of death and decided that they were going to leave him where he was. Now, death was starting to get worried. Soon, people would find out that the rules of death didn't apply to them. They would go crazy like that time he was locked in a closet in ancient Greece. He had to get back on his feet. He needed help. That was when he heard the song. It was a whistle far off, the sound of a young man walking his way through the forest. He was on his way to town to sell his parents' crops this week and, oh my gosh, what was all this? 
Did this man need help? Death, whose arms and legs were bending in all sorts of the wrong ways, was tempted to be sarcastic, saying through swollen and busted lips that no, he just laid like this on the side of the road for fun, but decided that he should probably do the prudent thing and beg for this kid's kindness. The kid didn't even need the begging, though. He was raised to do the right thing, even when it came to death itself. He rushed over and, dribbling some water into death's mouth and producing a lump of bread and cheese from his pack, he helped the stranger. It wasn't quite a Wolverine-level healing factor, but in an hour or so, death was sitting up, and in two, he was walking. He thanked the young man for his kindness and said that he should probably level with this kid. He, he was death. Oh, yeah, I guessed, the young man said, hanging his water skin back on his belt. You did? The young man nodded. Yeah, there's like this black aura around you. Fills me with an existential horror that I can't quite describe. When I look into your eyes, I sense the void of the great beyond. Well, the, the left eye. The right one's still pretty banged up. Well, thank you kindly, young man. Because of you, death can now resume in the world, death said to the boy. Oh, huh, okay, that's... That's great. So, you're welcome, the boys started. He just had one question to ask. Of death. Death watched the boy awkwardly dance around the topic before shaking his head. He thought he knew what the boy was asking. Sorry, but the answer was no. The boy hung his head. So, immortality was off the table then. <laughs> now that you've saved me, it is. Death chuckled. I got in your face, am I right? But really, it wasn't even his call. It was more fate than anything. Everyone dies. The young man nodded. As a kid growing up in this time period, he knew that better than most. I mean, how many of the fairy tales have kids getting dismembered, am I right? Death thought about it. There was something he could do, though. Before the time came for this guy to shuffle off his mortal coil, Death would send messengers to give him a heads up. The boy thought about it. That was kind of awesome. If death is an inevitability, at least he would know it was coming. He was functionally invincible. Now, wait, Death said. The boy could still die. <laughs> Not without you telling me first. And if I'm going to do something dangerous and your messengers tell me that I'm going to die, I won't do it, the boy said with a growing smile. This wasn't immortality, but it was kind of the next best thing. He hugged Death, who winced as he squeezed Death's still broken ribs and said, once again, that the kid really wasn't getting it. He was using poetic license. Poetic license. The kid shook his head. Didn't even know what that meant. Bye. The kid was, I guess, functionally invincible. But he didn't enter into paradox territory, where death's messengers would tell him he was going to die, he doesn't do the action that will kill him, and suddenly he's changed his fate by knowing his fate. He learned early on that, even though he was safe from death, there were a lot of painful things leading up to death that could still happen to you, like broken bones, disease, etc. So, while he was reasonably confident that he wouldn't die, he didn't want to live in pain. He decided to take it easy with, like, duels and cliff diving and stuff. Death's promise did help him when he got sick. One time, it got pretty bad, and he was racked with fever and chills. 
Pain radiated through his throat and chest with each cough. He felt like he was going to die. And each morning, he looked up to the door, expecting death's messengers to tell him that death was on his way. But they never came. Maybe it was because he was supposed to get better. Maybe he got better because he had hope. Regardless, he did get better. One day, he woke up without pain. The next, he could rise and breathe normally. He continued on. The man got married, had a family, and his children got married and had children of their own. As the decades went by, that strange incident on the road when he was a kid seemed to grow dimmer and dimmer. Death came for his wife in the night. Not only did he not get to catch up with an old friend, he didn't get to say goodbye to the woman with whom he had shared his life. Death found more of his children while they were away. Shipwrecks, bandits, disease. Still, he continued on. His sight grew dim. He would find himself winded after tending to his small plot of land. That was when he could even manage to rise in the morning, his joints feeling like they were grinding on themselves. One morning, while the cool wind blew in the sunlight, the man felt a tap on his shoulder. He turned and was facing the stranger he had met on the road. All those decades ago, that man hadn't aged a day. He said that it was time to go. The elderly man, our protagonist, threw down his carrots. What? Come on. He pointed a shaky, gout-stricken finger at death. Death went back on his word. Where were the messengers? He hadn't seen any messengers. Death promised messengers. Death smiled. Oh, friend, I sent one messenger after another. Was it not difficult to rise from bed this morning? Hasn't gout, i.e. arthritis, come to pinch your limbs? Did your ears not ring? Eyes grow dim? Teeth fall out? These were my messengers to tell you that the time was at hand. The now elderly man looked back to his home. It was empty now. His wife had gone before him. His children were living elsewhere. Life was moving on. He felt it. His time truly was over, and he was grateful for what he had had. He nodded at death. Yep, time to go. Death patted the man on the back, and the two walked off in the cool air of the morning. I mean, like, I'm cool with it, but kind of cheap, though, the man said to death. Pardon? Death said. I thought it was poetic. Yeah, sure, it's poetic, uh, but really, doesn't everyone who's lucky enough to live a long time experience at least some of those things? It's, how is that a reward for rescuing you? Like, I could have dragged you home misery style and actually lived forever. Not that I would have. Just saying. It was a little bit of a bait and switch here. Well, I guess another lesson is that death isn't fair, death said with a shrug. And then he held up his arm to stop the man from going down a particular path. Oh, he, he didn't go down that path. Oh, what, the giant? The one that's been there forever? Giving all of us a hard time? The elderly man pointed down the path. Wait, you don't... The giant gets to live forever? Really? Yeah, well, you put death in the hospital and you'll get some special treatment too, death said. And the pair walked off down the non-giant road.
There's a sweet reading of this story about death's messengers and how all of this is universal and stuff. But really, practical application, if you see death on the side of the road, maybe don't go all good Samaritan. Just do us all a favor. Keep walking. If you'd like to support the show for less than the price of Shakespearean insult bandages, bandages that have Shakespearean insults on them, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that won't insult the world in Elizabethan English anytime you get a paper cut. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Beast of Lederdalen, and his dad, and his son, all of them are from Ireland. When it comes to the Beast of Lederdalen, we really have to step back a generation to understand what's going on with this guy. Though, that really helps you understand what's going on with anyone, right? Anyway, the Beast was born when a horse monster seduces a human woman. Though, that word doesn't always describe what happens, to put it extremely lightly. The dad, each usage, I'm going to call him the horse monster, is similar to the Kelpie, the Celtic water magical horse. And he's an unpredictable dude. In some places, he's like an actual true horse. And in others, he's like a jacked Bojack horseman, a humanoid horse with great abs. He doesn't just like to kidnap women, though he absolutely likes to kidnap women. Like the Kelpie, if you touch the creature at all, you'll find yourself magically stuck on it until it decides that you can leave. Some people who have found themselves riding the horse with eight-pack abs... No judgment, but if a shirtless horse shows up at your farm and starts working for you, just waiting for you to climb atop it, maybe don't do that. One farmer did, and as this horse monster raced toward the sea, he managed to plant his feet on trees and rocks along the road and push, tearing himself free. Another person had to cut their own finger off to avoid being dragged into the water and drowned. But yeah, sometimes people are into the horse monster. Once again, no judgment. And that's one way that the Beast of Lederdalen can come into the world. Said to be the result of each, the horse monster, seducing a priest's daughter. You can't see the air quotes, but they're there. The Beast of Lederdalen has his dad's personality, but not his looks. Not much is known about the Beast of Lederdalen, other than the fact that he is the head of a human and the body of a bellows, like the thing you use to blow on a fire. Not sure how we get from jacked horse monster to bellows monster, but we do get there. The Beast of Lederdalen, though he also peruses the land for a mate, is not as, let's call it picky. In fact, he doesn't even care if they're human. His son, the Ox of Dill, was the result of him kidnapping a cow and taking her under to sea to be his queen. I mean, I don't want to speak for the cow, but this probably worked out for everyone. The cow wouldn't be slaughtered, humans don't need to worry about monsters dragging them under the water, and whatever the gestational period is for the result of a half-human, half-horse monster, and a cow, amount of time later, the ox of Dill was born. The ox is said to be monstrous, but instead of harassing women, this supernatural creature looked out for one. Dill, the daughter of a prominent god in Irish mythology, had the exact same birthday as the ox. To the minute, they were born at the same time. The ox became the girl's best friend, and when a druid came to try to, quote, carry her off, he found that he couldn't do so without also carrying the ox as well. He left humiliated, and the ox came full circle from his grandpa's creepiness.
that's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>